So we're fortunate to have on our program this morning Mr Rod Jones, special guest, founder and chairman of educational services provider Navitas and chairman and principal of your family office Hope Ridge Capital. Rod, extraordinary career of which we'll, we'll unpack shortly. I thought to begin though, if you could give us some context as to sort of the background of your life as I understand it, you grew up in Fremantle, one of four, your, your father was, was in business. Tell us about your, your family and your, your upbringing if you could. Yeah, look, I uh, grew up in Adderdale and back in the days when we first moved to Adderdale, there was no such things as roads and uh, electricity. It was a really quite interesting period. It was uh, the start of uh, the era of that whole part of, the, of Western Australia. And as I said, we started off there with no roads and electricity came about two months or three months after we moved in. Going, living in the Fremantle district, it was, it's a great part of the world. I love Fremantle. As a young kid, we could just, we'd ride in there. It was about seven or eight kilometres into Fremantle, but we'd just ride in as seven or eight, nine-year-olds into the city, go walk around the city, go to the old places like the, the particularly the, what, what one of the places we really enjoyed was the old whaling station. We used to play around there, come home. and But those days, you could just leave your house open, wander out, go down into the bush and where we were, and this is going back into the mid 50s, there was wild brumbies, there was kangaroos, there was emus, all just running around in this, what's now a major suburb of Perth. And let's talk about your, your schooling and your education. You, met, uh, you mentioned Adderdale Primary School there, and then there was also Melville Senior High School, and then ultimately John Curtin College. What was Rod Jones like as a, as a student? At best average, <laughs> uh, look, I enjoyed I enjoyed outside being outside rather than sitting in a classroom. But look, I did my did my bit as a student. I, I went through primary school, no problem. Went to Melville High School, and back in those days, it was only a three-year high school. It didn't even you know didn't even move on to fifth year. I went on to John Curtin to do my final two years, and I was one of probably a hundred people. And at that time, there was only about 12 or 1,300 students in Western Australia who were doing year 12. And then, and, oh, sorry, and going on to university. Now, I went on to university. University was interesting. I went, I went, went in there for agricultural science, mainly because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea. I think I went to university probably about four or five times during the year. The rest of the time I went south surfing. <laughs> Came back and decided, oh, I've got six weeks before the exam, so tried to do that, but that was a disaster. So uh, left university and uh, you know, went out and worked on a farm for a while. And tell us about your, your position working on the farm. I think you were a field assistant at one point with the Department of, of Agriculture. Tell us about some of those experiences, if you could. Well, when I went out on the farm, I went out to, uh, on a wheat bin with CBH at the end of the year and got to know the fam a family out there and they were looking for some help on the farm. So I actually went out and worked on the farm. You know, I could have ended up being a farmer, to be honest. But it was about nine months in and the, 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 the farmer had a heart attack. And that effectively meant that, you know, that he then decided, there was uncertainty about what was going to happen. So I ended up getting a job with the Department of Agriculture as a field assistant. Now there's nothing lower in the pecking order than a field assistant. But it was a great job because what they used to do, my job, my role, I worked in what was called um, the weeds and seeds uh, uh, department. And effectively my role was to go out and put in trials, clover trials, all over the state. 
they used to give me a car on a Monday. I'd dis uh, go out, plant, and I'd come back on the weekend with the car. But I worked out that if I worked it really hard, if I headed out really early in the Monday morning, I could probably knock over the foot trials by about, uh, even working at night, I got work through till midnight, then drive down Tuesday morning, I'd drive straight down to yelling up and I'd surf for the rest of the week and take the car back on Friday morning. <laughs> it was good fun. <laughs> and, then, and then from there, so, so you're working in that role, you're, you're enjoying it. Uh, I think you would have been sort of mid-twenties, approaching your late... No, I was actually about 21 then. Okay, so early twenties. What, what happens next? Where did you see your life going? Well, I met my now wife um, and um, she got a little bit tired of me disappearing, surfing every week. Um, and the outcome of that was the pressure went on, so that she, I had to go and find, told me I had to find a real job if, I, if we wanted to stay together. <laughs> and I went and actually joined, joined the Commonwealth Government in the Bureau of Census and Statistics, as it was then. Uh, and I was there for about five years and sort of worked my way through. Went from there, I got a job with the University of Western Australia as a statistics officer, which was uh, a good job, and then sort of moved through the state government for a while into Tertiary Institution Service Centre, which was the admission centre for all of the universities in Western Australia uh, for students who wanted to go on to university. Was deputy director there, was deputy director at the um, Secondary Educational Authority. And that was interesting because I was a non-teacher and I came in as deputy director and dealing with a whole lot of teachers, was that was fun. <laughs> but why, why education did you, you well, sort of fell into it, but then you obviously enjoyed it, I take No, look, I think the way I look at, I've always thought about life as like a tree. You know, you, you climb the trunk and there's a whole lot of branches going in different directions. Why do you take a particular branch? I had no idea, just sort of did it because some, there was something there that looked interesting. And you sort of work your way up through this, this branch and you end up where you end up. Uh, but there's, there's no, there was no determination to get into education. It was just what I fell into rather than working, wanting to actually get involved. But yeah, interesting times and, and, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the time that I had there because I was sort of in a statutory authority rather than working for the government. So you had a lot more control over what you could do and what you couldn't do. And I think that was interesting. But it also, on the other side of it, introduced me to international education. And give us a, an indication just before we move on into sort of what you were doing in that role day to day in terms of admissions um, and... Yeah, look, I think as the Deputy Director, uh, back in what the secondary education, uh, well, what TISC did in normal uh, was the admissions side of, into university, but it also was running at that time the year 11 and 12 examination system. So we, TISC ran the exams for the end of year 12. What, what they determined to do was to take that component of TISC out and put it into the Secondary Educational Authority. And the Secondary Educational Authority then had ran the, high, uh, the upper school from year eight through to year 12. Uh, all the, you know, the curriculum and the uh, examination. I went in there because I understood all the examination side. But you know, I, I've got to say, when I went in there, the, the, I was dealing with teachers and that was, that was interesting. But I, I, what, it probably was good because it gave me a real understanding of how to operate within the educational sector, which is a bit different to the normal sector because of the, I guess, what you would call the, um, the, the passion that they have. 
in a whole, which they utilise in a whole range of ways. So you're working in the education sector and then sort of mid to late 1980s the Labor government introduces some significant changes opening up international students yeah. to Australian universities. Tell us about the impact that that had and then subsequently the, the opportunity yeah. you saw. Well when I was working, in, before I moved to the Secondary Education Authority in TISC, I was approached by a group called Sunway College and Sunway College is out of Malaysia and they were looking to introduce an Australian um, year 12 program into Malaysia because a lot of students over there would, were looking to, uh, to move overseas and they, were look, so they saw a, an international qualification as an easier way to get there than through the state system in Malaysia. So I got involved with actually working with Sunway College to put together the program for them and that was actually the first international program, Australian program, and that was before the international education industry basically started. So that was in 1983, I think it was, 82, 83. When the government changed the rules in 86 to allow full fee paying students to come down to study in Australia, I was asked by the then Minister for Education in Western Australia to go across and be involved in, in setting it up for Western Australian institutions. You know, he, to give him his due, he was far-sighted. He could see that this could be something really big within Australia and you can also see that Western Australia as a small state if it didn't get itself operating in an effective way in other words where everyone operate, operated in a cooperative uh, coordinated way that we could be run over by all the big states in the east. So my role was to work with all the universities and colleges interested in education, in international education in Western Australia and take them overseas to introduce them into the markets to set up their relationships, etc, etc. And oh, I couldn't have asked for a, for a better job. You know, someone paid for me to travel all over the world, uh, staying in five car accommodation, <laughs> travelling business class everywhere. It was great fun. I, you know, I, you, I look at it and say, wow, you know, how, how did that happen? But it did. And I saw one interesting stat that, um, that after a couple of years, I think, was that 25% of all international students into Australia were coming to, to Western Australia. So obviously the, the program was working effectively. Yeah, in, in the early 90s, uh, early, sorry, the late 80s, early 90s, we had 25%. Because when we went over, we, we operated, so it was like a, they used to call us the Western Australian spider web. And we'd go out to these exhibitions and everybody, we worked as a group, you know, could the four universities as they were then, you know, a variety of colleges that were involved in uh, teaching international students, and anybody who walked into that spider web never got out, because <laughs> we worked together. You know, for, you know the uni even the universities were working together. If a kid came in and they didn't have the program that student needed, they would make sure that they took them down to meet the person in the next university who could offer what they wanted. So, uh, we we just dominated there for a while but you know it was never going to be like that forever because it uh, you know we are a relatively small state there are bigger cities like Sydney and Melbourne that were more attractive to the Hong Kong market and the likes but the the, the initial markets Singapore Indonesia uh, Malaysia we did really well out of it Let's talk about then the transition from sort of sensing and seeing this opportunity to then capitalising on it with your own uh, business, including the launch and, and growth of IBT education. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, I think 
in, in being involved in what I was doing, I, I actually took a job with a group called Beaufort College. Uh, and that came out of, I was saying, you guys just don't seem to understand what needs to be done. And, and, the, and the, the, the then owner said to me, well, if you think you can do it better, come and come in. And I joined them. And I, that, that was quite a good opportunity and it worked for us for a while, but it was, in, it was really in the secondary space. I was more interested in the higher education space. And while I was there, I could see what was going on in terms of these students were pouring in to the state and into the institutions and particularly the universities. But the problem is they were being boarded in, they were being thrown into classes of three or four hundred. And it was a matter of survive or die. There was no support, there was no backup. And what we were seeing is something like 70% were failing subjects in their first semester. And somewhere between 30 and 40% were dropping out of first year as failures. And you know, that, that's nobody's interest. It's not in the students' interest, the parents' interest who are paying a lot of money. And so it's certainly not also in the university's interests where they, and they were becoming uncomfortable about the numbers that were failing. So what I did, I, I approached Edith Cowan University and said, with a, with a concept around, which was around providing for students what they needed to successfully transition from where they'd come from to where they really wanted to be. And so we did that within the first year program of the degree. So there's things like putting in small classes, extra teaching hours. I ran a three semester academic year just by reducing a few holidays. But by doing that, they could spread their program out over three semesters. They could bring fun in English if it was required into the first semester and through the program if required. And effectively still complete the first year within one year and moving it forward. And from the first cohort we put in, something like 90% were getting through to second year. So all we did, it was nothing, there was no, no rocket science to it. We just provide an environment where the kids could get the help and support they needed, as I said, to successfully transition to where they really wanted to be. It wasn't with us, it was with the mainstream university. But the beauty of the program was it was based on the university campus. So from day one, the students still felt like they were students of the university, effectively. Um, Edith Cowan picked up on it, and uh, from day one, it just took off. And within two years, I was having approaches. And my, my ambition was to build one college, make a really good living out of that, and just enjoy myself. But I kept getting approaches from universities in the eastern states who could see what was going on and see what was happening. And the outcome of that was, but they never, they never actually did anything about it. So we decided we'd go and do it ourselves. <laughs> Approached a couple of universities. That was, and that was fascinating. I should tell that story because it's worth telling. Um, we, we decided to approach two universities, well, uh, uh, but starting with one in Sydney. We went to Macquarie University. The, uh, the, the vice chancellor, Di Yerbury, went to talk to her about what we were doing. And she said, and they were, they were the sleeping giant in, in Sydney. They, they were basically, everyone else had lots of international students, they didn't. Approached them and said, this is what we're doing, etc. She, oh, she said, I'm really, really interested. And I said, but I'm also looking at starting something up. This is in July. I'm also interested in starting something up in Sydney by the beginning of next year. And I'll be talking to other universities if you're not interested. So I need to know within a month whether you're interested or not. Oh, sorry, no, I need to know by next Friday, <laughs> this is on a Wednesday, Friday week, um, whether you're interested or not. Anyway, 
okay, we'll leave it there. So we, we, we're sitting, I'm sitting in my hotel room in Sydney. I thought, I'm over in the east. I might as well go down to Melbourne. I knew the, the person who, at Deakin University. I rang her and said, look, I'm really interested. You, you, I've got something, a concept to discuss with you, if you're interested. She said, oh, yeah. So I flew down there, and that was on the Thursday. Had discussions with her. She said, I think the university will be really interested in this. Can you stay around for Friday and meet with the, the executive of the university? I'm, they're having lunch on Friday. You've got to, we can probably have about 20 to 30 minutes to, to talk to them about what you're doing. Went down there, did it. And I also said, and by the way, I'm looking to set up in Melbourne <laughs> for the start of next year. And um, so I need to have an answer by Friday week. <laughs> Quarter to five, the following Friday, Perth time, I, I, one came in from Macquarie saying, yes, we're interested in pursuing it. One came in from Deakin saying, we're interested in pursuing it. I already had an agreement from um, Edith Cowan University, so all they did was change the names on them, sent them over and said, here's a proposed agreement. Now let's discuss it. Exactly one month to the day that I had my first discussion with both of those, I went back to Macquarie on the Wednesday, one month later, and signed the agreement. Flew down to Deakin the next day and signed the agreement. And I had two new going for the beginning of the year. So, <laughs> productive trip then. <laughs> but what was your what was your pitch? How did you how did you win them over? Because you this new business. Yes, you've got a lot of experience. Because the problem was exactly the same problem as what ECU was having. Macquarie slightly differently different in that they hadn't been recruiting a lot of students. And Di could see that we had the network and, and, and to do it all. Because one of the, th the important things about getting international students was building relationships with the core, um, if you like, I'd, I'd almost call them gatekeepers of the students coming to Australia. And that's the agents. And over the time that I'd been working, both within Western Australia and, 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 and well, basically through Western Australia, but I'd built really strong relationships with a lot of agents. And even when I started Navitas, the first thing, I never, you know, I just went back to those agents for those first intake and basically pulled in a few markers. And it wasn't, you know, they wanted to support me. But I ended up on the first intake, like we signed the agreement with, with Edith Cowan again in the August. Our first intake was February the next year. And we, kept, we started with 200 students in, you know, in, in basically three months or four months of marketing. It was, you know, but, and that was the pattern that was going on. And everybody could see the success of what we were doing. And that was really what the universities were interested in, that we were solving a problem for them and, uh, and getting, providing quality students. And then what about the, the international growth? How did you go about achieving that? Um, again, a lot of it comes from, as I said, building relationships and, and, and really capitalising on those relationships as you go forward. If you look at, um, at what we called IBT Education was the initial, what we did is we actually branded all of our colleges in a similar way. It was PIBT, Perth Institute, it was SIBT, Melbourne, MIBT, Melbourne and so on. And the, but everybody saw us as this big group. What they didn't realise, the structures were, they were individual colleges. Because one of the things I did when we actually put the structure together was because I wasn't quite sure whether every one of them would work, I'd set them up as an independent company 
so that if one didn't work, you could cut it off without Im impacting on everything else. Now that was great in the early days because it, it protected us, but it wasn't really needed. But then when we were starting to move towards, you know, where do we go from here? We had all these colleges with a slightly different ownership. <laughs> so then the, the next thing I had to do, which was about, that was about, uh, before we were going into the listing phase, was to actually bring all those together as a single company. And that was an interesting exercise in itself. So the business grows both domestically and, and globally in the yeah. UK, in Europe and, and across the US. And then, as you said, you're tidying up those structures, you're looking at what's the, the next chapter for the business. And then, as I understand, you get approached by Kaplan out of the US. Uh, you think the valuation is about 100, they come in at 280, which must have been a nice day, but how did that approach come well, together? We decided that we, we need to sort this problem out. And alongside that problem was one of the directors of one of the colleges was keen to um, retire, and another one had motor neuron disease. So he was looking for how do I capitalise on what I've helped build here? and not be locked into something where I can't get access to my money. So we looked at two ways of doing it. One was a trade sale. And, and again, there was a lot of discussion around this because everybody believed their particular college was the most important and was worth more than everybody else's. So yeah, I had to do, with me it didn't matter because I had a common amount of all of them, so it didn't really bother me. But, but the reality, it was, a, it was a problem that took a lot of solving, but we did it. But alongside that was, we looked at what do we do? Do we look to do a trade sale or partial trade sale or do we list? And I think um, at, that, and that's, at that time when we were making, going through that process, Kaplan approached us and I thought, okay, well, look, look, we're talking about a trade sale. This is interesting. Let's go and talk. So two or three of us went over to New York, met with them. And Dad said, we walked in and within five minutes of sitting down at the table, he said, uh, Rod, um, you know, we, you know, we've looked at your company today and we're prepared to give you $280 million. And now we'd sort of said, oh, we're probably worth 100, 100 or so. <laughs> and I said, well, where'd you get that? I said, well, he said, and, and, and I said, but you don't even understand what we do or our operations. You, you, we have, we've just arrived five minutes ago. And he said, oh, yeah, you do this, this, this. I said, what about all of our... Um, colleges in the UK, have they been, oh, you got, you're in the UK as well. So, so anyway, I said, no, no, look, let's, we'll go through the process. And the next day it was really a tag team right through the day uh, with their people. And it was, yeah, it was amazing. And this guy, I, I still remember him, the guy who was running Kaplan, to be blunt, he was a complete, can I say it, dick? <laughs> complete dick. And Anyway, at the end of the day, I thought, no way in the world I'm going to give this company to this, to this group. Anyway, um, we went back to his place for a final dinner. And I think the thing that really annoyed me more than anything else, the guy who actually had worked with us and done all the hard work to get us together, he was made to sit at the back of the room because he wasn't senior enough. And I thought, nah. Wrong guy. Uh, and he comes, he comes walking out. Anyway, he, was, he didn't, wasn't there. He came walking out and said, I've just got off the phone to Warren, because Warren Buffett owned a uh, large part of the Graham boot, who owned Kaplan. So, and Warren said, we can go as high as $320 million. <laughs> And I said, well, actually, um, I'm only here representing a group of shareholders. I've got to take this back. Generous office offer going to take it back. 
the three of us walked down the road after leaving his house back to our hotel. Not one word was said all the way back. And we got to the hotel and I said, guys, I'm not in. Now, if the group decides they want to sell, I'll sell. Because, oh, one of the things he said to me was, and by the way, Rod, we'd want you to stay one for five years. And that would mean you'd be able to come to the US of A at least four times a year. <laughs> anyway, yeah, um, I got back to the hotel and said, guys, if, if, if everyone decides they want to sell, I'm not going to hold it back, but I'm not in. I'm not part of the deal. Won't do it. The other two guys said, couldn't agree with what we're not in either. So we went back, talked to our guys, and uh, all of everyone said no, if that's it. I just said, guys would be dumb. And that's when we decided to move forward to a listing. And then the, the other thing I thought at the time, if Warren Buffett, who's renowned for never paying too much for anything, is offering us $320 million, then um, maybe we've got something here a bit more. <laughs> so we went through the, the, the process to the listing and, and that was amazing. You know, we, we put, the, put it out in the market at a market cap of 360. Um, we only put 15% out to the market, we held 85. Um, the day it hit the market, uh, we, I said, we were sitting there watching 15 minutes before it was due to come onto the board, boards and um, I'm watching it go. And it was a dollar stock. Um, I was hoping it might get to $1.50. It went to $1.50, $1.70, $1.80, market open at $2.10, went up to $2.80 and came back and closed at $2.30. Justified the decision then. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly we'd, we'd take it, it was an $800 million company. Incredible. And what about the, the process of, of IPOing? How did you find that, and, and we'll explore later, yeah. um, the, the return of the business to private ownership, but did you find at the time that there was a lot less uh, regulation and red tape then? Look, I, I think we, we went through the process. Um, we have good people working with us um, that, uh, that, you know, who helped us through the process because, you know, that wasn't my background or any of, any of the director's background, but they helped us through the process and we came out of it very well. Look, uh, I, but you're right, the regulatory environment and the governance and compliance issues you have to deal with now are just, just so great. Back in those days, we could get on and make things happen. I think as we went through the uh, years, I became more and more frustrated uh, over a range of things. Number one is dealing with pimply-faced little analysts who knew more about your business than you did and uh, you know, couldn't understand why you weren't doubling your business in the next three months. <laughs> you're dealing with that, you know, the, 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 every six months doing road shows, you know, then you've got to, in between that, you've got all these guys bringing up. I got tired of all that sort of rubbish. Um, I also got really um, frustrated about the regulatory controls that were more and more, becoming more and more onerous as you went along, and, and a board that became more and more risk averse. Now, we built this business on understanding risk and understanding you know, what you could do it to mitigate the risk. That was always the first thing we, we evaluated. And then if you did that well and you looked at the upside and if the upside was greater than potential of the risk, you did something. What we, we, where we ended up at the, at, right at the end, it was really about a board that was so risk averse they wouldn't make a decision. I know on my last meeting I said to them, guys, 
We've just sat here and had a meeting where about 70% of the meeting was talking about risk. And, and a lot of it was around, they weren't prepared to take risk because they were more concerned about their own reputation, their own image, than they were about what was best for the business. And that's led, what led to, look, in the end, I reached the point, I turned 70 anyway, but I was going, so I decided I was going to retire, but I was watching, and I was more and more frustrated where the direction the business was going. And that's where B, BGH came on the scene. You only have to look at the, the size of an AGM report these days compared to 10 or 15 yeah. years ago, you know, it's volumes and chapters on clients and sustainability and all these sorts of things. Uh, you were CEO of the business between 94 and 2018. Yeah. How did you find that? You, you mentioned obviously in the in the latter part there, your role and, and um, some of your duties would have changed, but what were your proudest achievements over that? I, I think years? one of the proudest things I, I look back and say is that there's not a lot of people who can take something from a startup with nothing to a $2 billion business, $2.5 billion business, whatever it was. It, you know, the growth you have to keep be able to make and keep going. Most people you can do, can do well between zero to 100 mil, maybe zero to 500 to a billion, but I was able to keep going and keep, and you know, be in tune with the business all the way. And that was one of my proudest achievements, that I was able to actually do that and create a successful business um, with all the trials and tribulations you have to face on the way through. But we did it. And you know, part of it was that we, I always built a good, I'm a great believer in working with people. I always had a good team around me. I think one of the attributes I've always had is I've been, I'm a, I'm a person who listens, I hear, and I bring people in. And I, and I, I think I've, I've been described as having really strong leadership qualities. You know, I can, I can bring people on the journey with me. And I think part of that was that I was always very good to think, very able to think laterally. I could see things that others couldn't see. I could always see the end point. And a lot of people think there's only one way to the end point, it's straight down there, but it might be around there. And sometimes if you, if you end up with your nose stuck up against the door, you'll never get through the door. But if you take a step back, you might see there's no walls and you walk around the door and keep going. And that's what I was good at doing, was able to evaluate what needed to be done to achieve the outcomes we were trying to achieve. Do you think those skills are innate or do you think you can be taught those or you can learn those through, through being a CEO for two No, I think it's, it's, a, it's a mix. I think a, a natural lack, there are not a lot of natural lateral thinkers. But that's a reality. A lot of people think they can, but they can't necessarily. They can't, they get fixated on a way forward and they can't, move themselves out to the sides to take a broader view of what's going on and so but but there are a lot of people but I think if you go through the journey appropriately in terms of your business life you can you can actually understand what the what those because you can actually think to yourself I, I need to look at elsewhere I need to look around this rather than look down there Let's close out the Navitas uh, story. As you said, in 2018, uh, BGH Capital teamed up with Aussie Super and yourself and, and your shareholding to purchase the business back from the public market into private ownership. What made the business attractive to BGH and how did you find working with them? Well, it was quite interesting how it all happened because I was frustrated. I could see where the company was going and I was very unhappy about what the direction it was taking, being driven by a new CEO, 
who is my CFO, very good CFO. But what I did see was um, the, 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 there was no forward momentum. Everybody was too concerned about risk and everything else. And, and, and when I pulled the pin, uh, uh, well, I was, I was looking to leave in October and November the previous year. But I could see with the new CEO I needed to put some effort into getting him to where it needs to be. But of course, as you get closer to your final retirement date, you become like a, uh, you know, <laughs> you're sort of floating around. Everybody doesn't want you involved. So, but it was frustrating and I could see the direction it was going to go and that really worried me. And so I happened to be having a lunch with Terry Bowen. Terry Bowen's the ex-CFO of um, um, West Farmers. Was the director of finance, I think he was. But Terry and I were having lunch, and he was whinging about you know frustrations he had when it, in terms of being at the public company and West Farmers. I was whinging to him about what was going on at Navitas. He had just been just started work with BGH, so he went back to BGH and said, uh, you know, um, um, are you interested in this? Because they just the fund had just started or started the, the previous year. That I still hadn't had their first. Um, you know, company. They have, you know, are still looking to find their first investment. And he went back, and so Ben looked at it apparently and came back and he came back to me and said, look, we'd be interested in taking this forward, having a discussion. I said, okay, I don't mind having a discussion. And he came over and my, honestly, my view of PE was very low. I just saw them as these people that came and smashed the business to, to bits looking to just maximise the dollars they could take out of it. Don't, didn't care about what the business was, it was still about maximising dollars. And, and I, that was the view I took and that's the sort of view I put to Ben at the time when he came and see me, which was an interesting start to the conversation. <laughs> but but he then, we then started discussing it through and the structure of BGH. And I think that was what sold me, that when you look at all the investors behind BGH, they're the major superannuation and pension funds and sovereign wealth funds in the world who are not, not just interested in, in you know, short-term gains. They're all, all more about long-term sustainable um, income. And, and that interested me because I thought that sounds, you know, they're the right sort of investors. And it was going to be a 10 plus 2 fund, so it's a long fund, um, and, you know, which gives us time to go where we want to go. And I think I really got on with the guys. I really liked them. And when we finally, then we, then we had to tackle the, the board. And that was an interesting exercise. I won't go into the gory details of that. But, but in the end up, um, we managed to get it across the line. And um, yeah, the company went, to, uh, pub, uh, went private again in, in July, uh, June 2019. Yeah. Enormous deal. They paid circa, I think, $2.3 billion. Yep. It's, it's been reported thereabouts. In, in terms of enterprise value, they've now owned the business for four or five years. How have you found that the business has been able to regain its footing and its growth? It's, it's, it's been an interesting five-year period. Uh, you know, you've got COVID in the, minute, uh, in the middle of it. You've got international students not being able to travel. Um, so, you know, there's no question we went backwards a bit because of the... but. I've got to say the sustainability of the business right through that whole COVID thing was handled beautifully. And I've got to give a shout out, I will do it. Simone, my son took over as the CEO. And I've got to say, I think the way he 
drove the company through that period, which was a really tough period. You had to make some hard decisions, probably decisions I would have found difficult to make because a lot of the people, we, you know, we had to reduce the share, the, uh, the staffing. You know, we, we, we dropped, we had about 7,000 staff. We dropped about 1,000 staff. You know, that's, for me, most of those are almost like family. And so uh, it was, and I think that's part of the thing, we built this big family. So I, I, very difficult for me to make the decision, but the way he did it was magnificent in the sense that nobody left negatively. Everybody went out with the right thinking, the right way. He, and he made some smart moves, like for the, to keep the people we wanted. He actually um, said, okay, everybody, and this is going back to March 20, so this is when the COVID's really just starting. I'd like everybody to go back to four days a week in terms of pay, so 80% pay. You only have to work four days a week, but I will guarantee anybody that stays that by, by December, the, the end of December, we will push you back. Now, the interesting thing, there's a whole lot of them said, we don't want to go back. We're happy on 80% salary and working four days a week. So, but it was a brilliant move that kept, you know, we, we did, in other words, we kept all our people as long as on, apart from the ones we, we had no choice. There was a level you had no choice. But that helped us really sustain ourselves right through the COVID period. And the, the, the effect of that, we're now on a real growth trajectory. It's really coming back as hard. We'll be back to uh, this year, back to our 2020, uh, yeah, this year, we're back to our 2000 and above our 2000, well, back to or above our 2019 numbers. So um, that's, you know, I reckon that's not a bad outcome. It's a credit to it, it means, it, it means that we have to, you know, probably hold a bit longer if, 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 from a BGH perspective, but the reality is that, um, it's going to be okay. And presumably that would be the same for many companies in sort of Absolutely. private equity funds at the moment. You couldn't yeah. foresee three or four years really of, no. of disruption through COVID. Yeah, right. And I think the beauty of two also of the structure is the, the actual fund only owns 20% of the, 7% of the business. The balance of the fund is owned by a direct investment by five of the uh, LPs, which is, you know, like Australian Super, Canadian Pension Plan, blah, 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 and myself. So we still own um, uh, between a 70, 72% of the business. And so you still have the long-term outlook as well, like you said, with that, some of those super funds. So that's Navitas. Let's explore other aspects of your life, including Hope Ridge Capital, Hope Ridge uh, Enterprises, your, your family office. Could, just before we go there, can yes. I just chuck another piece in on that? Yes, I, just a comment on the BGAs, because this is a lot of people don't like working with people. Yeah. I've got to say, our experience in working with BGH as a PE firm has been outstanding. They very quickly realised that we knew what we were doing, we knew what the business was about. So rather than trying to direct the business, and they, they came alongside us, and worked with us and, and, and used their strengths, which was around the financing and everything else, to support the business, but let people like Scott get on with the day-to-day -day operations. And I think that was a brilliant strategy that worked really well. It's a good endorsement there. Let's talk about, we've spoken about Navitas, let's talk about Hope Ridge Capital, your, your family office. What's the, the genesis of the business and what's the mandate for John and the team here? Um, look, I think where, where this came from, you know, I, 
you start generating some funds and, and, you know, I, and the problem is I was working full time on Navitas and you're generating these funds and, and, and what I was finding, I was, I was almost wasting money because you've got money so I was looking for investments to do things but the problem was I never had the time to um, basically um, you know, do, do it effectively. And you know, you also, once people know you've got a few dollars, you get every man and his dog knock, knocking on your door. That's the reality. So, and so and that's what was happening. And I remember where the John's thing came from, where the, I decided I had to do something different. Was got, someone knocked on my door and just to get rid of them, I said, oh yeah, I'll give you some money, go away. And then I realised this is dumb stuff, really dumb stuff. So I'd met John through um, working with Argonaut and a, and a deal we had done around a power station in Meriden. And, and I really enjoyed his company. I, he, was, I, he was very committed, very conscientious and also very good. And uh, so when I was looking to set up the family office as a structure, um, I asked him would he, would he be interested in joining me, which he did. So, uh, and, and back in the, a lot of our investments those days, and again, it's about balancing off what you do uh, uh, versus uh, you know, how you invest. And I guess I made some early mistakes. You know, entrepreneur, risk taker, <laughs> jumping into the stuff, looking for the looking for the ten bagger every on every deal. Uh, just you know, silly stuff, and, and wasted a bit of money, to be honest. But um, I think what we've now done is we've come back to a much better place where we do a lot more work around what we're investing in. I think what we've found also is that. We've built up this relationship with a lot of family officers, particularly out of Perth, but also in the Eastern States, where I found these family officers as a group to work together. They, you can trust them. You can, they're, they're great to co-invest with because you've all got the same uh, goal of, of what you do. Um, you, and, and you, to me, that's important because, and we find that a lot of the deals we're doing now come out of this network of family officers. Um, where, where uh, you know, some people do a lot of work on a particular thing and say, look, we're into this. There's a co-investment opportunity. Would you want to do it? You, well, you, you can do, you can piggyback on their analysis and the same they would do the same with us. And, and that's just worked really, really well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the early focus of the business was uh, more geared towards sort of the energy sectors and, and the industrial sectors, but it's now, uh, at least from the outside looking in, expanded across all asset classes in, yeah. in different geographies. I think what it's done, you're, you're right, there, a lot of the stuff was, we fell into it rather than, you know, but, you know it's an opportunity that we saw and we, we, we tended to follow it through. But I, I guess as I've got older and probably smarter, we do a lot more what I would call passive investment now. Working with funds, uh, working with property, um, and looking for, looking for investments that will give a good return, not just, not necessarily even capital, but a good flow of funds. Yeah, you know, most of the investments we have are now pretty passive, We're, but they're, they're giving us a minimum of 10% return per annum. You know. And one thing I've also learned over time, which never really interested me because I was more of this go-getter who wanted to, as I said, hit every deal out of the park. But compounding is one of the, the, the best ways to grow your wealth. 
compounding and, and patience by the by the sounds yeah, of it. Yeah. And and I've I've become more patient. Maybe it's, I'm finally getting old enough to grow up. <laughs> but but I'm becoming more patient, and I'm more interested in uh, you know long term success rather than as I said the. Uh, the, the ten baggers that may or may not happen. <laughs> I want to ask you about uh, investment opportunities or, or long term where you see sectors that offer investment opportunities. Is there anything that you're looking at or that you've invested in, particularly here in Australia, where you think that's got a lot of long term growth and a lot of funds are moving into the agricultural space and food and all these sorts of things? Are you bullish or bearish on any particular sectors? Um. <laughs> Look, I'm still fairly bullish on the resources sector. I think, you know, I don't, you know, I, I, I understand what's going on in terms of, uh, you know, the global warming, etc. But I'm also a realist enough to know that companies like Woodside and the like, we cannot do without them for at least another 20 years, in my opinion. Some say 10, some say 20. The reality is, you can't just turn oil and gas off tomorrow. Moving away from coal, I, you know, I, we've, we've clearly made some decisions about what we will invest in and what we won't, and definitely we won't invest in coal. And th- uh, but, uh, but there are other things that you look at and you say, well, they, they might still be damaging the economy, but you can't do without it. You can, you know, do you want to turn off all the lights? Do you want to go back and uh, drive around the streets in a horse and buggy? It's just not realistic. And you know, whilst I, I, I do accept the problems, uh, we've got to make the transition as smooth as we can. And um, you know, I look at tra- you know, even if you look at some, a lot of these um, renewables, the, the energy costs in actually building the stuff, and then d- getting rid of the stuff when it runs out of its life, is you know almost as much as the, you know what we're doing with oil and oil and gas. I think it's a good summation and it's certainly um, a clear trend, you know, some states seem to understand it, Queensland and, yeah. and Western Australia and, and unfortunately where I'm based in, in Victoria, some states <laughs> don't, don't get it. But, um, but, but, no, but there's no particular area that, you know, I've said this is where I want to be. Look, there are new areas coming out like AI and, and, and the like and, you know, I, I, I don't have the technical expertise to be able to make appropriate judgments. I think if I go into that sort of space, you know, we, we would look at going in through a, a, a fund you know, that, that specialises in you know, an ETF or something like that in this space. Because you know, trying to pick winners, is just, it's, and this, it's, unless you know what you're doing, it's a dumb game. I want to ask you about key lessons or learnings that you've learned throughout your, your three, four, five decades in business. What are they? I think one of the things I've learned particularly is um, success comes from being honest, being trustworthy. Uh, I think one of the things we've built a reputation in this office is we'll never dodge you. you know, people see us as they can deal with us and they can deal with us knowing full well that, you know, we'll be true to our word, we'll be honest and we'll be trustworthy. And I think I've built that up over time, that um, uh, even in, in uh, Navitas, I was always seen as someone you could trust. You know, if I said, said I was going to do something, I always did it. Uh, and that, you know, and, and <laughs> life's not generally like that. Uh, I think the other thing that I, where I, I think if one of the things I've done I think 
and this is not me, it's not even me saying it, I have built really strong leadership qualities. Uh, an example of, you know, well, I won't use the example, but the reality is that, you know, if you're a good leader, you can people, take people anywhere you want them to go. Um, you know, as someone said to me with Navitas, 6,000 people would have followed me over a cliff if I said that's where we're going. And that, because that's the sort of, and admittedly I'm working with teachers and the like who are very passionate about what you did, and I always made sure I backed them up and everything. But the reality is it, it's about, you know, trust, honesty, and leadership qualities. I reckon and I've been able to, in my life to develop those. Fundamentals for success in business, and you sort of touched on them perhaps there, but uh, is there anything that really stands out from growing a business from a startup to, to the size and scale that, were, that it was? What were the fundamentals that you kept your eye on during that time? I think the one thing that I reckon was always an important part of being successful was I always spent my time evaluating every opportunity. And by that I mean is, it was never about looking at what could be the upside, and that's a, well, I think one of the big failures that many people do. All of my focus was on the downside. Looking at all the risks and understanding and evaluating them, what do I need to do to mitigate them? And if I believed I could mitigate them, then okay, what are the rewards I could get out of it? And as long as your rewards are gonna be greater than your risks, then we'd have a go. But to me, too many people focus on that and ignore that. And that's why so many people, in my opinion, fail. So my final question is, uh, what does the next chapter look like or what's left still to achieve for Rod Jones and, and the office here? Well, I think, I, think um, I, I want to set this up for the family, for the future. You know, my two boys and, and, and my daughter and my wife are, are involved in it to a lesser, more or lesser extent. But the reality is this is not about, you know, just what, turn it all, close it all down when I die. Well, part, you know, it's about building something that is a legacy for the family moving forward. And I think one thing I've got is a very, very close family. And I think one of the, my biggest achievements in life is having a family where everybody works together. We're all part, you know, we're, we're beyond parents and children to being, we're friends. Now, to give you an example, every year, a lot of us um, go away kids, grandkids, the lot. We'll do a, a trip together. Uh, and, uh, or we'll go down south to our property and yelling up, everybody will be together. And that's not driven by my wife or I. That is the kids who want to do it and they want us there. And I think that's, you know, that's to me is about continuing the legacy of the Jones family. Great, great story. Remarkable uh, note to finish on there. Appreciate your time and look forward to seeing what you achieve alongside the family over the next decade and longer. Thanks for your time. No problem.